almost buried under the heap of all the geopolitical news about Ukraine and China, and the news about our own politics, Mr. Biden, the GOP, classified documents, and much more, is the news and politics of our government's relatively new approach to antitrust enforcement. Google and Amazon and Facebook and a number of Apple and other number of other firms grew very large uh, and powerful. Uh, people began to worry about that. There's a there, there was actually a movement called the New Brandeisians that that uh, Lena Khan, who's the current FTC chair, was associated with. She wrote said, a paper on that, right? Yes. Is bigness of a company in and of itself? some sort of antitrust violation, like the sheer size? Well, that's an interesting question because historically the answer is no. I mean, there's no wording in in the Sherman Act or, or the Clayton Act that says bigness in, in itself is a violation of the act. But from time to time, the courts have acted as if it, if, as if it is. So labor unions were often prosecuted early on under the antitrust laws because they, um, you know, if you think about it, what they're trying to do is they're organize their organizations that attempt to uh, to use their collective organizational power to bargain for uh, higher wages for the members. And they're essentially fixing price of labor, right? Right. Standard Oil was a company in. 1870 with only about 4% of the refining capacity in the United States and the Standard Oil Trust, but a decade later had about 90%. From 4% to 90% in 10 years? Yeah. Wow. In his memoir, he talks about how he stood on the Texas border and looked longingly into Texas in this big market. (laughs) (laughs) It's as if you're looking into a different country. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that geographically speaking, antitrust laws were not enforced equally across our country? For example, states such as Kansas and Texas enforce antitrust with much more vigor than eastern states. In the case of Texas, the reason we had big oil companies in Texas, such as Texaco and Gulf, is because Texas wrote its antitrust laws to keep standard oil out of its borders to prevent it and many other large companies from stifling the growth of local companies in Texas. Hey there, news peelers. Today's March 3rd, 2023. And this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Biden administration's Justice Department is taking a tough stance on antitrust 
For example, recently sued to prevent JetBlue and American Airlines from entering into a partnership. But the story is much bigger than that, as big as Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook, which were all the focus of a 16-month-long congressional antitrust investigation that ended back in 2020, leaving us with a 449-page report. Also in 2020, the Department of Justice sued Google for its alleged monopoly in online search and related advertising. And this year, 2023, the DOJ filed a second lawsuit against Google, alleging that it has engaged in anti-competitive practices and digital ad brokering. Also currently, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which is a separate institution than the Department of Justice, is preparing an antitrust suit against Amazon. The FTC is looking into whether Amazon favors its own products over competitors and how Amazon treats outside sellers on its platform. As for Facebook, in the closing days of February, the FTC announced that it is dropping its efforts to block Meta's acquisition of the virtual reality startup. This happened after a U.S. district judge declined to issue a preliminary injunction against the deal. The FTC's defeat in this case prompted the Wall Street Journal editorial board to ask, rhetorically so, does Lena Khan, the FTC's chair, ever win a case? Recently, Ms. Christine Wilson, the FTC's only Republican commissioner, resigned in an open letter published in the Wall Street Journal, stating that she wants to make a noisy exit because the FTC, under the leadership of Chair Khan, is attempting to remake federal antitrust laws. So, as evident, when it comes to antitrust, politics is very relevant. One could even say it's all about politics. My guest in this episode, Dr. Naomi Lamoureux, explains how antitrust enforcement has changed since its lax era back in the 1980s. She also adds that it's not just antitrust. Patent law, which is seemingly a highly technical field of law, is also a product of our political system. Dr. Lamoureux takes us back to John D. Rockefeller, to the days of Standard Oil, to how the term antitrust was adopted and how the scope and enforcement of antitrust has ebbed and flowed over the centuries. This history is replete with colorful characters, such as Judge Learned Hand and later Judge Bork, and iconic companies such as General Electric, International Harvester, and the United States Steel Corporation, and organizations such as labor unions, NAACP, and the Ku Klux Klan. Dr. Lamar is a professor of economics and history at Yale University's Department of Economics. She's also a senior research scholar at the University of Michigan Law School. Among her many books, she's the author of The Great Merger Movement in American Business, 1895 to 1904. And she's a co-editor of several books, including Corporations and American Democracy. Another book is Financing Innovation in the United States, 1870 to Present and also the book, The Battle Over Patents, History and Politics of Innovation. To learn more about Dr. Lamoureux, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Lamoureux and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Lamoureux, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I want to speak with you about the history of U.S. antitrust laws and its politics, and from there get to current government antitrust cases against Google and possibly Amazon. 
But before we do that, let's get some definitions out of the way. Um, why do we call it antitrust? That is a historical artifact uh, in the 19th century. Uh-huh. Most states had laws that prevented firms from merging or made it difficult for corporations to merge and also prohibited corporations from, from holding stock in other companies. So when Standard Oil uh, in the 1870s started to acquire uh, uh, oil companies around the country, there was no available structure for Standard to use you mean there was no there were no M&A laws? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean there was no way to for uh, for Standard to merge with all these oil companies. Huh. So they how do they do it? Huh. Well, so that's where trust comes in. So uh, Standard's lawyers scratched their heads and came up with this idea of using a contractual form called the voting trust to uh to you to develop a contractual solution for the problem of of how to merge so what they did is wow. they asked of the firms that they were acquiring their shareholders exchange their shares in the firms being acquired um for trust certificates from the standard oil trust and that meant that's uh that they would um have shares in this larger trust which was a holding uh entity for all the different firms that that standard was acquiring all those firms still maintain their legal identities um as separate corporations but their shares were transferred into this trust and uh, the trustees, who were all standard executives, conveniently voted, so, right? <laughs> yeah, voted voted the shares in the individual companies, and distributed the earnings to the certificate holders. Um, and the uh, certificate holders had deposited their shares uh, in the trust, the their shares in their individual companies in the trust. Interesting so trust. So this is fascinating. So uh, Mr. Rockefeller's solution in Standard Oil wasn't to acquire these companies because there was just no legal way of doing it back then. So this is all the growth of Standard Oil into this giant company that gobbled up all these little companies was contract law, essentially. Yes, exactly. Oh, that is fascinating. So Standard did this, and um, nobody really knew what the contract was. Um, but New York in the uh, the New York legislature in the 1880s held an investigation and got people like John D. Rockefeller uh, to come testify in. And as part of that hearing, um, the New York legislature acquired a copy of the Standard Oil Trust Agreement and made that pu uh, public in their in their publication of their hearings. And then. All of a sudden, people began to understand what was going on. And Standard Oil was the pioneer, but other large companies adopted the same strategy of using this contractual form. So there was a sugar trust and there was a linseed oil trust. That sounds like, funny, sugar yeah, trust. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so 
if we're saying the 1880s, that means that entrepreneurs, giants such as the Vanderbilts, the Van, Mister, that came much earlier, they didn't really go through this trust vehicle, right? No, no. Well, so Vanderbilt was in mostly in railroads. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so uh, railroads had their their own. They, they that was a more complicated process because railroads usually operated under special charters that were issued by states for their particular railroads. And so they often had to get permission um, from state legislatures in order to merge. And that happens sometimes. But but the manufacturing companies like Standard Oil was uh, an Ohio corporation that was chartered under Ohio's general incorporation laws. Um, And Ohio's general incorporation laws forbid holding companies, made mergers difficult. And so they had to come around, come up with this contractual. That's story. an interesting distinction between railroads and the companies that came later. Um, so railroads were sort of a specialty case when it came to corporations and right. uh, they had to get permissions. Uh, clarify this one more time, if you would, for me, please. The word trust is the is the reason that they use the word trust is because you are essentially trusting the voting of your shares to the standard oil executives is that where that comes from yes i mean oh, I see. this is a, co- a common device that was used in companies corporations usually used internally to a company for example a controlling group of shareholders might want to ensure that they all voted in in concert so they would agree to put their shares in a trust and the trust then would uh would vote would vote in um in corporate elections instead of the individual shareholders so it was a common thing and what standards lawyers did is take this common contractual device, the voting trust, and use it for the purposes of horizontal combination. The way you're explaining trust, the the way that term was used uh, in corporations, it almost sounds a little bit like proxies that we have right now, proxy voting in corporation. Maybe it's different, but it, it sort of reminds me of that. Yes. Well, so with a proxy, uh, the the line between voting trusts and proxies historically is a little gray, um, but usually with proxies, you give uh, you you uh, give a, like a corporate officer a proxy to vote your shares in a corporate election, and that's something you would do every year before the. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But a voting trust would be for a period of years. You agree. Uh, uh, to this arrangement. Now, the big fight in the 19th century was whether people uh, could pull out of those agreements if they changed their mind. And so there's a big case law on on that in the 19th century. Oh, interesting, whether or not you were stuck in it for yeah. years on and on, which, which right. makes sense. I mean, circumstances change and you may want right. to... And uh, so that's ultimately resolved by state law, which in mainly in the early 20th century, these laws are passed that allow people to enter into voting trusts that are irrevocable, but but that is, they can't change their mind, but the trusts are of limited duration. 
they can only be a certain number of years by law. So initially it was five years. Um, most states had five years. Then it got a little longer. So it was a compromise that, yes, these trusts are going to be irrevocable once you enter in it. Think about it before you sign that dotted line. Right. And once you're in it, don't sweat it too much because it's only like, for example, five years or so. Yes. You mentioned uh, how tr trust agreements were sort of unknown and there was an investigation by the New York legislature and they get a copy of that standard oil trust in Albany and it's the first time they see it and they make it public. And this is happening in the 1880s. What were the circumstances back then in the 1880s, or perhaps even earlier, you'll tell me, um, that compelled state and I guess the U.S. government to get involved in antitrust? What was happening? Right. Well, S Standard Oil uh, was, was a company in 1870 with only about 4% of the refining capacity in the United States and the Standard Oil Trust, but a decade later, had about 90%. From 4% to 90% in 10 years? Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's, so that, that got people upset. Uh, I bet. And, and it got people upset for a variety of reasons. But the main reason is that, that Standard was, was forcing firms to sell out to it. It was coercing firms out of business. And it was doing that because it had an agreement with railroads that allowed uh, it to ship its uh, its oil on uh, railroad cars uh, much more cheaply than competitors. And so basically Standard Oil goes to a competitor and says, I look, see. I can undersell you in any market. So you better sell out to me. And most of them did. And, and obviously that becomes a political issue pretty yes. quickly. Yeah. Um, fast forwarding a little bit um, to the laws that came in uh, as uh, as a repercussion, as as, as sort of uh, an answer to this uh, trust created by Standard Oil and other uh, companies then, uh, such as Andrew Carnegie's steel company. Um, I know of the Sherman Act, but I don't know of other uh, antitrust uh, laws. What are some of the big antitrust laws that came on in, let's say, late 18th century, early 20th century? I'm sorry, late 19th, late 19th century. century. <laughs> so the the uh, the first antitrust laws are at the state level. State level, I see. Yes, and so there's a bunch of states that already uh, enacted antitrust laws in the late 1880s. The federal government, Congress, enacts the Sherman Antitrust Law in 1890. And then there's some more state laws that are passed and state laws get revised and toughened. Um, there, there are no more uh, federal laws in the early, in the late 19th century, but in the early 20th century, uh, Congress passes the Clayton Act in uh, 2000, I mean, sorry, 1914, and uh, also the Federal Trade Commission Act. And those, uh, those were major revisions of the Sherman Act. Are there any uh, important highlights, differences uh, for these three acts that you want to share with us? Well, so the Sherman Act just made it illegal to uh, enter into any kind of contract that restrained trade or, or tended to monopolize 
made it illegal to monopolize trade or commerce. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And that's about it. (laughs) It just just said that. And uh, the Clayton Act uh, does some additional things, makes some practices, specific practices, um, a violation of the antitrust laws. So, for example, price discrimination is singled out in the Clayton Act as a violation of the antitrust laws. Price discrimination? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like that is trying to force uh, a company out of business by... Um, by uh, Underselling it? Yeah. by uh, But then in other markets, not using the same price. That is used, using selling different prices to force... For uh, selling goods at different prices to force competitors out of uh, business, the the Clayton Act also exempted labor from the antitrust laws. So labor uh, unions. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, so labor unions were often prosecuted early on under the antitrust laws because they, uh, you know, if you think about it, what they're trying to do is they're organize their organizations that attempt to uh, to use their collective organizational power to bargain for uh, higher wages for the members. And they're essentially was- fixing price of labor, right? Right. Yeah. And so that was considered uh, by some to be an antitrust violation until the Clayton Act um, explicitly exempted section, section 7A, I think it is, mm-hmm. exempted uh, labor from the antitrust laws. Um, and the Clayton Act did some other things. So, for example, it said banks uh, cannot have interlocking directorates with um, with uh, manufacturing companies where the where the effect is to lessen competition. Uh, there was this idea uh, in the early twentieth century that there was a money trust that banks had their people on the board of different companies that competed with each other. And uh, and that that had the effect of weakening uh, competitive pressures in those industries. And so that was made illegal under the Clayton Act. And then the Federal Trade Commission Act set up the Federal Trade Commission and gave it the enforcement powers that it needed to investigate uh, antitrust violations and then issue cease and desist orders and file cases in court against combinations. But it also, uh, but the FTC Act also declared illegal unfair competition. And then it gave the FTC the task of defining yeah. what was unfair. Because so that could be a little gave, vague, right? It was vague, but but that um, really broadens the scope of the antitrust mm-hmm. law. So the Justice Department has its own antitrust division. Yeah. Um, Is there such a thing as per se antitrust violation that you do something, wham, that's antitrust violation? I mean. Yeah. 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 So price fixing is a per se violation. I see. If companies conspire to fix the price of their output. That's a per se violation of the antitrust law. That sounds so much like OPEC, doesn't it? <laughs> it is, but they're not a bad, you know. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, but the famous example when I was a child is uh, some GE executives went to jail for price fixing. 
or oh, were convicted. I don't know if they went to jail, but they were convicted. Of, right? Interesting. Um, General Electric. Um, is bigness of a company in and of itself some sort of antitrust violation, like the sheer size? Well, that's an interesting question because historically the answer is no. I mean, there's no wording in uh, in the um, in the Sherman Act or, or the Clayton Act that says bigness in, in itself is a violation of the act. But from time to time, the courts have acted as if it if as if it is. So, uh, for example. Uh, probably the best example is the late 1940s, early 1950s, starting with uh, the Alcoa decision in 1945, which was handed down by uh, uh, Judge Leonard Hand. Oh, Judge Leonard Hand. Oh, I love his yeah. writings. Okay. I mean, he basically said Alcoa was big. And therefore, it was in violation of the antitrust laws. And Alcoa <laughs> was aluminum, right? Yes. Yeah. But, but did his uh, wording specifically pin the opinion, the holding of the case on the size? Or was it sort yeah. of dicta? Oh, interesting. Has that been yeah. repeated since? Well, so, so that was essentially um, the position that, that courts took in that period of time. Um, but uh, then there was a, a, a move away from that uh, in the 1980s yeah. with the so-called Chicago School reinterpretation of the antitrust laws yeah. led by Robert Bork. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so then, uh, then uh, the standard became not how big you were, but whether you harmed consumers. Interesting. We'll be back after a short break to talk about enforcement of antitrust laws. We'll be back. OPEC is a multinational organization that fixes the price of oil, which is a per se violation of U.S. antitrust laws. Last year, when the prices at the pump went up way high and then dipped slightly around Thanksgiving, I spoke with Professor Jacqueline Weaver in Season 2, Episode 40, about how the price of oil is set and how and why OPEC was formed. This is the amazing story of how ship captains refused to haul oil from America to Europe and how the world couldn't get enough oil back in the 19th century, a story that continues to this day and resonates in our time. Also in this episode, you'll hear us talk about patents. <laughs> but did you know? The patents do not give you the right to make a product, to use a product, or to sell a product. And if not, then what the heck are patents good for anyway? In Season 1, Episode 17, Mr. Stephen Pepe and Dr. Sam Brenner took us through the history of patents, how the idea came from Italy to England and then to the United States, and how Americans stole technology from England, and how much the patent system has contributed to the U.S. economy. We also talk about the humanitarian aspects of patents. Finally, in Season 2, Episode 13, Dr. Samantha Zions explained the history and ethics of the CRISPR patents. In explaining the CRISPR technology and its many uses, Dr. Zions showed me a CRISPR beer. For real. This is a fascinating history of the ownership of CRISPR, which basically has been in dispute since its very beginning. 
The links to my conversations with Professor Weaver, Mr. Pepe, Dr. Brenner, and Dr. Zients are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Lamoureux. Dr. Lamoureux, as we were talking about uh, different laws uh, in antitrust uh, from the late 19th century to middle of the uh, 20th century, I was thinking, why are antitrust cases so costly, so <laughs> complicated, and they take years? Why is that the case? Well, the stakes are very high. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, some of the uh, first successful enforcements against uh, large companies led to those companies being broken up uh, into separate com companies. Was uh, the Standard Oil an example of that? Yes. Okay. That's the first one, Standard Oil, and, and about the same time, American Tobacco, 1911. And a number of other companies uh, faced similar fates. And so, uh, so they throw everything they can at, at uh, defending themselves against uh, the antitrust laws. And it's actually a, a difficult case to make. Um, if you're not a, in a per se situation, if, if, if you're in- Like price fixing that, that you mentioned in the last segment, right. per se, then okay. If you find evidence that someone engaged in price fixing, they're per se in violation, right? But for anything else, you have to just, you have to show uh, that the effect of whatever it is you're um, you're being accused of has has had the effect of lessening competition or has had the effect of tending to monopolize the industry or has harmed consumers. These can be very difficult things to demonstrate, and so. They take a long time and people throw a lot of resources. Into you know, showing, as you're saying this, showing effect of listening competition, as I shared with you in our prior communications, I used to practice patent law. So going back to what you just said, show effect of listening competition. I'm thinking expert witness, like months, yeah. if not years of, of researching the facts to whether or not you have a case. Right. That's right. Um, I once spent some time looking at the uh, all the documents that were accumulated when U.S. Steel uh, was accused of violating the Sherman Act. And this case began um, began in the late, uh, probably began around uh, began under the Taft administration. I'm not sure what year. And then it continued for a long while, and then it was suspended during the First World War, and then it was finally decided in the 1920s. And oh, that's like more than a decade. Yeah. Uh, oh, it was you know more like two decades, and um, and they just brought witness after witness. Uh, so U.S. Steel called witness after witness, all of its competitors, all of its customers, to say. To say, oh, we have no problem with U.S. Steel. There. We love U.S. Steel. Yeah. <laughs> and then the government brought expert witnesses to talk about pricing umbrellas and economists and things, people like that. It took a long time. It it, it made up volumes and volumes and volumes. There was just a whole cart of of documents that I, I had it uh, out on 
uh, by my desk in the Supreme Court Library. And meanwhile, uh, the judge and his clerks or her clerks are scratching their heads trying to figure out all these economic data and comparisons. It's like doing uh, a medical or a patent case. In the prior segment, you you talked about the Sherman Act. It came out, I think you said 1890 or so. And it made uh, combinations uh, and trusts illegal. I'm wondering, did it have any teeth, enforcement teeth, the Sherman Act? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, almost immediately, um, there's a prosecution that's successful. So the act is passed in 1890. 1891, um, there's a successful prosecution of a cold dealer's uh, combination. Cold dealer. Okay. Jellicoe Mountain Coal. That, uh, uh, to uh, fix the price of coal. Um, and in the 1890s, it's successfully uh, deployed against those kinds of uh, combinations, pools and cartels. So there's a successful case against railroad combination. There's a successful case against um, a, a, a pipe, uh, a pipe manufacturers, uh, uh, pool um, as in railroad pipes or uh, no it, it, so it's Addison pipe and steel it's I'm not sure what the pipe what kind of pipes they were mm -hmm. but not for railroads um, but trans-missouri freight was one of the cases against railroads there's another one so those kinds of loose combinations were successfully prosecuted uh, almost from the beginning uh, but uh, and by loose combinations I mean combinations of independent firms that get together to form some kind of pool to fix the price. Now, Which is different than the standard oil uh, yeah. trust that you explained in the last segment, right? Right. Okay, now, got it. What, what made prosecuting standard oil so difficult is that uh, standard oil uh, gave up its contractual form in the 1890s and became a New Jersey corporation. So what happened is in the in 1888, New Jersey revised its general incorporation laws to permit holding companies and to make mergers easier. And so oh. Standard, which was actually under attack on a variety of legal fronts, changed its organizational form to a New Jersey corporation so it was no longer a trust it was no longer a trust right? oh. and then the court had a lot of difficulty deciding what to do about about uh corporations that were former trusts but now were corporations chartered by states and so designated as legal under that state's laws so um it effectively dodged the issue in um, in a case called E.C. Knight, which was brought against the um, uh, um, the Sugar Trust, which is again now a a, a New Jersey corporation. Um, but gradually, it, the court figures out it has to learn how to deal with corporations like Standard Oil of New Jersey. And so it, it sort of works its way to a, dis, a, dis, a, a way of dealing with them 
um, which it articulates in the decision in 1911, breaking up Standard Oil and the the sister decision in 1911, breaking up the American Tobacco Company. And what it basically does is it says, okay, corporations, a, a trusts that take the form of a corporation aren't per se illegal, but if their conduct suggests that they have taken this form just to squelch competition, then they can be broken up under the... Um, under the antitrust law. And so uh, so then uh, that decision, those decisions are collectively known as the rule of reason, where you have some tests. And if the corporation fails those tests, if its conduct seems to be anti-competitive, if it seems to be doing things just for the purpose of squelching competition, then it can be found in violation of the Sherman Act. Okay, there was not as yet no Clayton Act. There was as yet no federal. Trade yeah, Commission Act. Uh, I get rule of reason. I wish you were there when I was taking antitrust classes <laughs> to explain this. We talked about state uh, antitrust uh, cases and uh, sort of interest to fight these big monopolies, um, and then the federal government gets involved. I'm wondering. Was there at any time in our history the regional differences in the interest and enforcement of antitrust laws? Yes, absolutely. So the eastern states tended not to be aggressive enforcers of their mm. antitrust laws. Oh, okay. I would have thought eastern otherwise. Okay. No, it's the western states which are the aggressive ones. So um Kansas, for example, is very aggressive in enforcing its antitrust laws. Texas, Texas, um, the reason we have an oligopoly in oil is mainly because of Texas. Uh, after the spindle top uh, discovery, that's when oil is discovered in Texas in 1901. Uh -huh. uh, Texans want to exploit this and they, they're worried about letting standard oil. So they so under their antitrust laws, they um, they 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 write their antitrust laws in ways that are interpreted as as keeping Standard Oil out of the industry uh, in in their state. Uh, so under Texas laws, it was under Texas general incorporation laws, you could not be a vertically integrated company. Yeah, you couldn't en engage in drilling and oil extraction and refining at the same time. And so uh, so with a strict interpretation of, of that and also its antitrust laws, Texas successfully kept standard oil out. And that is um, what created the space for new companies to emerge like uh, Texaco, for example, and Gulf. So let me see if I can rephrase what you just shared with me we have these big companies in the east coast uh, the northeast mostly such as the standard is one of them and you have these new states who are finding their own uh, economic vitalities their own resources and as they're emerging to become an economic player in our country they're saying wait a second wait a second we don't want these companies encroaching into our territory versus like a state like Massachusetts or New Jersey, they're already they already have these companies established, and they probably are ha have some 
regional benefits for them. So that's why there was a difference between the mm -hmm. West and the East. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So does right. that difference in enforcement at the state level continue? Uh, yes. In, 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 okay. So I have tracked it as far as through the 1920s and it's still, it's st there's still a lot of uh, antitrust activity um, at the regional level uh, in the in the West and in the Southwest and the South. Um, Texas is a big state. Kansas is a big state. Just to give you some uh, a sort of interesting fact, you know, we have a national uh, organization of attorneys general, uh, and that is formed in 1906 uh, in I believe in St. Louis, uh, and it's organized the because. Um, state attorney generals, state attorneys general who were prosecuting Standard Oil and other large companies under state antitrust laws wanted to join forces. That's how um, that started. Oh, that's yes. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when states went after big companies, did their laws mirror? what was in, in in our federal books? Well, so states were in the vanguard. Uh, they were in the vanguard, those, okay. Yeah, especially those Western states. I think Kansas was probably the first state to enact an antitrust law. Um, uh, but their laws had a lot of things in it, in them that federal law did not have. Um, Such as? Well, so... So the so states the right the privilege of chartering corporations is 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 essentially a state privilege. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, so states chartered corporations when one of their corporations then took out a charter in New Jersey or Delaware or someplace like that. That that corporation was then considered a foreign corporation. And states had the ability to force foreign corporations to conform to state law if they wanted to do business in their state. And they also had the ability to oust them, uh, to, to refuse permission to do business in the state. So, for example, Texas, Texas ousted International Harvester uh, which was a big uh, agricultural uh, machinery uh, conglomerate. How do you oust a, a company like that? You say you, you just you, 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 you revoke their license to do business in the state. And there's a really interesting memoir by um, by McCormick. Uh, the, I think it's the grandson of the uh, of the McCormick that that was the inventor of the Reaper. And he is a, he's he's he works his way up through the company, as was the habit at the time. Even though he's you know the relative of the owner yeah. uh, or the controlling shareholders, and later he's going to be CEO, right? But at that point, he's a sales rep, and he in his memoir he talks about how he stood on the Texas border and looked longingly into Texas in this big market. <laughs> <laughs> it's as if you're looking into a different country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, and, this is this is not on topic, I guess. Uh, I'm just wondering, do, do states still do that? 
revoke licenses and prevent? I, you don't hear that. So, that the power of states to do that is a lot weaker now. Yeah. And, um, but I can tell you that until recently, I mean, it, certainly until the late 20th century, they could do that. So um, uh, in the civil rights movement, uh, one of the ways in which um, Southern states opposed the activities of the NAACP was to, uh, was to try Focus. to as a foreign corporation. Yeah. So, so the NAACP was a corporation uh, chartered in New York. And uh, so the Southern states tried to impose some uh, restrictions on the NAACP in order for it to operate in um, so that Alabama, for example, uh, required the NAACP to turn over its membership lists in order. Oh, convenient. To, uh, yeah. And so I'm sure NAACP said no. Yeah. Well, so this goes back and forth to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says you can't do that. And that um, that probably had the effect of pairing some of this yeah. ability to regulate out of state uh, companies. Um, but it certainly was a vital right until then. Um, now there's there's two, you know, there's the state's right to control what corporations operate in their borders versus interstate commerce. Yeah. Um, and so those two things battle out, uh, you know, uh, sort of battle each other um, over time. But the foreign corporation powers remain really powerful at least until the New Deal, and and uh, and certainly they're still being used, again, as the civil rights cases suggest in the 1950s. And interstate commerce, which gets into constitutional law, becomes very important during uh, the FDR years, uh, the yes, New Deal, and right. the Supreme Court gets involved, and you had the court right. packing scheme that fell through. We'll be back after a short break to talk about a subject that I'm super excited about, illegal monopoly that we Americans grant to our inventors. We'll be back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Lamoureux, America's patent system essentially provides monopolies for a limited time and in a specific field of use. Um, I would argue as a former patent attorney that patent monopolies have benefited our nation and its economy. I guess I'm a little biased here, but historically speaking, have there been abuses of patent monopolies? Okay, so first I want to just be a little careful about the the use of the word monopoly. Okay. So what, the, what the patent office, what a patent gives is uh, 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 an exclusive right to a very clearly specified 
uh, invention. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, that is is akin to a monopoly in that uh, you're you have the right to exclude anyone else from using that uh, that that technology uh, for the duration of the patent. But it's not really a monopoly in the sense that often there's many ways to do something. And so there are often substitute technologies. So it's actually relatively rare uh, that a patent grants a monopoly in an economic sense. That is in the sense that it would give the holder of the patent control of of an entire market. That's really rare. It has happened. Uh, but most patents are for little things. And, you know, you might get a patent on, you know, a little doodad on a machine, but there's other doodads that can do the same thing. And so, so your, your no patent may inspire happen. others to do a workaround, a legal workaround, uh, yeah. and come up with another invention. Yeah. And so it, your your patent doesn't economically stifle that specific field. For example, whatever lane pavement or tractors or right. um, you know chips in cars, such as Tesla. I, I understand right. what you mean. So yeah, that those sort of abuses are rare. Right. Yeah, they're rarely economic monopolies. They're 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 rights to exclude very specific technologies. Uh, other people from using very, very specific technologies. Now, one of the things that happened in the early 20th century when you get very large companies that for the first time begin to have internal R&D labs, they start patenting lots and lots of little things. Oh, believe me. And, (laughs) And then you get enough of them, you have some you know, that they, they give you some right, the, some ability to harass competitors. Um, one of the, since all these large firms, like, so I'm thinking of GE and uh, AT&T and RCA, they had a lot of over, lots and lots of, they had portfolios of thousands of patents and they overlapped to some extent. Yeah. So they, in the early 20th century, began to do something uh, called cross-license each other so that they would uh, allow each other, uh, they would agree that these other big companies could use um, this portfolio of patents without uh, the threat of being sued. But there's, but you can make the argument that those agreements were anti-competitive in that- How so if they are enabling competition, right? Well, they're enabling this small group of companies oh, a, a uh, to dominate an industry. And and you could argue that it made it hard for smaller competitors to get a, a foothold. And certainly people thought that at the time um, there was a big uh, antitrust investigation that was commissioned by Congress called TNEC, um, uh, TNEC, um, um, okay. The uh, the let's see what the commission. I I can't remember what the what the initials. Our government is full of uh, acronyms. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but certainly they took a lot of testimony on those cross licensing agreements. Um, so in effect, let's say two three 
large companies uh, within a specific field, for example, uh, making tractors or farm equipment, they would agree to give each other rights within their technologies. While that's inclusive among three, four giant companies, it is exclusive of all the other uh, they didn't use the term startup back then so readily, but all the other new companies and startups, so to speak, right? That's what made right. it abusive. So that's what, that was the accusation, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I don't think anyone has studied it with quite the, um, so the econometric uh, heft of some other topics in antitrust or in patent, uh, patent uh, law. But but it's it would be worth studying to see what the effect of these cross licensing agreements was. Yeah, they're hard to study though because as as you know as a patent attorney, there's no requirement to register licenses, and so uh, it's hard to get the data that you would need to really study those agreements. Let's talk about your book, please. Its title is "The Battle Over Patents." Um, what is this book about, and how does it relate to antitrust? Okay, well, that's a. It's actually not a book I I wrote. It's a book that you Steve edited. Haber, Steve Haber and I edited, right? Yeah. And our goal was to bring bring to light some really serious studies of how the patent system worked. Um, today, you know, patents are a topic of, of, about which people have very strong feelings. Yeah. Well who have strong feelings one way or another often make claims about history that, and often those claims are just not right. So our initial impulse was to uh, tell the history correctly, but, but actually it turned out we learned a tremendous amount from the authors that are included in this volume. And particularly what we learned is that you shouldn't think of the patent system as the product of of theory of people working out what is sort of the best way to encourage technological discovery and and writing that into law, but instead you have to see the patent system as a as the product of political forces pushing against it. And uh, and interesting, uh, yeah. And so that's the battle over patents in the title is. Every person in business really has an interest uh, on one side or another of a patent dispute. So if they're an inventor, they have a, a, an interest in seeing patents as, as well enforced as possible against infringers and, uh, and earn the highest returns uh, for their intellectual property that they can, whereas people downstream in the production process who are using technologies generated by others are trying to keep those costs to a minimum. And that's the battle that has really shaped the patent system over time. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Lamoureux as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast.
Dr. Lamoureux, uh, the federal government has sued Google. Uh, two different antitrust cases are now pending, and it is preparing to potentially sue Amazon. Um, can you please place these three cases in the context of antitrust history? Well, most immediately, this is a response, a reaction against the laxer period of antitrust enforcement that began in the 1980s. Uh, so uh, this we talked about in an earlier segment where, when people like Robert Bork and others associated with the so-called Chicago School of Antitrust yeah. uh, uh, argued uh, for a new standard, which was consumer welfare standard for finding um, uh, an antitrust violation. Uh, so it didn't matter if firms were large. It didn't matter what they did. All that mattered was whether consumers were harmed. And in the early uh, 20th century, 21st century, as firms uh, like Google and Amazon and Facebook and a number of Apple and other a number of other firms grew very large uh, and powerful, uh, people began to worry about that. There's a there was actually a movement called the New Brandeisians that that uh, Lena Khan, who's the current FTC chair, was associated with. She wrote said, a paper on that, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, and and uh, uh, Tim Wu is another person in Columbia uh, Law School, um, writes for the New York Times. They, they began to say that uh, we're in trouble there. These large firms are endangering American democracy. They're endangering... Uh, uh, other consumers, they're endangering rival business interests, and we have to do something about it. Um, and so that was a reawakening of uh, an earlier antitrust impulse in response to the growth of these large firms in the early uh, 21st century. Now, at the, at the same time in Europe, um, the European Competition Commission was, was moving against these firms. And they were finding uh, they were finding and uh, them guilty or 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 or, uh, or they were suspecting they were guilty of anti-competitive practices at a time when the U.S. antitrust authorities and particularly the FTC were not. And so uh, so this current surge is a reaction to that period of laxity or a perceived laxity uh, in. That began in the 1980, uh, 1980s and then continued until really the Biden administration. Yeah, and, and size in this case really matters because the companies that we're talking about, Amazon and Google, they're just ginormous. And I think uh, if my memory serves me correctly here, there was also a, an antitrust case against Facebook that started in 2020, uh, something to that effect. But um, these are gigantic companies um is the government assertiveness or is the perceived egregiousness of the alleged sort of antitrust violations does that somehow measure up to let's say standard oil i mean when we talk about standard oil dr lamro i'm thinking meanness here i mean rockefeller really put people out of business and yeah. is is there are there any resonances with those earlier uh antitrust cases i believe there are um and 
so Standard Oil was never accused of harming consumers uh, because oil prices uh, kept coming down in this. Yeah, period. lowering. Yeah, and it it's not necessarily anything that Standard Oil deserves credit for. Uh, because there were all these new discoveries. This, there was a huge um, yeah. supply response um, that that had a lot to do with bringing down prices. So it's never, people are never accusing Standard Oil of harming consumers in the sense of gouging them with high prices. It's really about their, it was really about Standard's practices uh, with respect to its competitors, the people it was forcing out of business. And really, that's the sort of same story you have with with companies like Google. Yeah. Now, Google doesn't charge anything for it. <laughs> Most of what it provides uh, American consumers. You know, Google is good for you and I, right? Yes, it's it gives us things for free. But it has been accused of of uh, of uh, engaging in practices that disadvantage potential competitors, for example, by uh, displaying higher on its search results for uh, enterprises that it has an interest in. Um, the European Union is also accused it of uh, of using of tying um, uh, its. Um, its search engine to uh, to to uh, certain software on Android phones. Interesting. Uh, you know, in in the first segment, we talked about the the shift from trust to corporations, and we continue that in the second segment. And 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 now we are in the age of corporations. We have been for more than a century, thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court case, Citizens United. What is it now? 15, 16 years now. Uh, these corporations have humongous, unrivaled political power. <laughs> have we gone too far? So, so I think this is a different issue from antitrust. Yeah. Um, I I just like to be careful about. Talking about corporation, the corporation versus talking about humongous businesses. So there are maybe four or five million business corporations in the United States. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of these are small. Anything yeah. we do in the area of um, uh, of regulating corporations is not. It doesn't just target Amazon and Google, it, but but targets four four million. It targets mom and pops as well. Exactly, and it's really important to bear that in 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 mind. The other thing is Citizens United, the corporation that was that Citizens United it was not a for profit corporation, so lots of corporate lots of um, voluntary associations, clubs, um, political organizations take the form of corporations. And we have to also have to think about how we want the laws to apply to them. I, I talked a while ago about how the NAACP was a corporation. Yeah, yeah. State of New York, right? Um, so does the Citizen United case have any indirect 
ramifications towards antitrust law. Uh, I mean, it gives corporations and especially big ones a lot of political power. So, so regardless of of Citizens United, mm -hmm. uh, so take Citizens. I I would I don't believe. So I'm not a fan of Citizens United decision. I don't think we should treat money as speech. Um, but that's a but take that out of the picture. Okay. Uh, Google, Facebook, and all these uh, other large companies donate uh, spend a lot of money lobbying and that is never that doesn't come under our campaign finance laws at all which is just crazy it's just yeah, yeah. now google and last time i looked they were up there with the american rifle association in terms of the amount of resources they spent oh boy lobbying on uh, in congress it seems to me that lobbying resources are a lot more worrisome than what we were calling what 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 we're um, talking about in Citizens United, in the sense that lobbying resources are direct, directly spent on influencing influence peddling with elected officials and appointed officials, and our laws governing them are relatively weak. Um, so uh, I think that's something we want to we want to think about. Uh, now, um, Citizens United just meant that there was that there was a brief period uh, before an election where corporations were and and unions were not allowed to spend money uh, promoting a particular candidate. Right. So mm -hmm. its effect is limited to to that. But yeah. money pervades our political system in other ways. And we have to think broad, more broadly about, about perhaps breaking up some of these large companies also addresses that. Um, that's sort of the angle that I was going uh, for. Well, but not necessarily. Not necessarily. Right. Why right. do you say I mean, that? Well, it, it's so, uh, so you, so you break, you know, standard oil was broken up into a few companies, their major companies. They can all still spend money lobbying. Yeah. I mean, as long as their objectives uh, align, they're still doing yeah. the lobbying. Yeah, and their objectives That's a good point. tend to a, yeah. a, align. I think that antitrust is a completely different thing and that we have to worry about confusing the scope of the antitrust laws with other things that we can be concerned about, uh, yeah. about the role of money in politics, about uh, about privacy issues, all kinds of things. It doesn't imagine breaking Facebook into <laughs> into a half dozen companies, all of which have our private information. Does that help? Oh. <laughs> now you're frightening me. That could even be worse. Um, it could so be worse, right? And uh, so, one of my colleagues at UM has written a book that makes that point. You know, it's not clear that antitrust concerns are good solutions. Antitrust remedies are good solutions to these other problems. That's that's a that's an excellent point. Let's get back to antitrust then. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about antitrust after everything we've talked about, what would that be? Well, what I think the most important thing to bear in mind with antitrust is that it's about it was originally about conduct towards rivals, toward competitors. 
And what we have, what's really important for the health of the American economy is ongoing innovation. Uh, and if you choke off uh, new rivals, uh, then you hurt that. Yeah. And so I think that the most important thing to be, for people to be paying attention to is what the effect of large firms' actions uh, might be on, on, on competitors, especially competitors who are likely to be technologically innovative. Yeah, you, you, you might be killing off startups. Exactly. So yeah. are you drawing, in, in, the, in the minute we have left, are you drawing a distinction here between impact of um, the conduct of antitrust or, towards rivals versus their effect on consumers? These are two different buckets. Mm -hmm. So obviously we, we still, if, if uh, so I would, I would put it this way. If a firm is engaging in activity that is directly harmful to consumers, it is in violation of the antitrust laws and should be checked. But just because a firm is engaging in conduct that doesn't directly harm consumers doesn't mean that it's there you go. engaged in an important antitrust violation. That's an excellent point. Dr. Lamoureux, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also. Unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. Mm -hmm.